Kia ora and welcome. You're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for joining us for part two of Heron's Flight, where we are up at Matakana and this time speaking with David Hoskins. This is somewhat different content to our usual format as David takes us through his winemaking process. If you're wanting to find out more about Heron's Flight, you can look them up online, heronsflight.co.nz and also be sure to check out some of the other NZ Wine podcasts. Right now, let's go have a chat with David. So we only grow Italian grapes. Two-thirds of the vineyards in one grape called Sangiovese and the rest of it's in Dolcetto. Now Dolcetto... We grow because it ripens um, two to three weeks earlier than the Sangiovese. And not only are these unusual grape varieties for um, New Zealand, but we also do different styles of wine using the same grapes. Now, this is actually a good thing when I'm trying to explain how I make the different styles of wine, because if people have no preconceived notions of what a wine's supposed to taste like, I can explain to them the little techniques that I use, and they can identify um, more easily the techniques that I use by tasting the wine than if, if, if I was doing it with Merlot, and they'd have this conception of perception that Merlot is going to be soft and fruity, or Chardonnay is going to be this or that. So when people have no baggage that they're bringing, it's actually easier. And I mean, I'll demonstrate it with you. Um, and what I do is um, I start with the Dolcetto. Okay. With the Dolcetto, we used to make one red wine with it. That's it. In fact, when we first planted all of these grapes, we actually thought that we'd be making one wine out of the Sangiovese and one wine out of the Dolcetto. Um, we feel pretty strongly that small wineries tend to make... Um, the mistake of growing too many things, trying to make something for everyone. As um, Whereas if you take a European um, example, they, um, they look at what works and then they grow that. Mm. If you want to grow Pinot Noir, you know, go up to Burgundy. If you want to grow Cabernet, you know, go to Bordeaux or something like that. New Zealand doesn't think, seem to be like that. There are obviously are exceptions. Mm. But, um, but small wineries... We'll make white wine, red wine, a whole range of different wines. And our view is that what you should do is try to work out what you do well. I mean, there's obviously a risk because if you put all your eggs, in a sense, in one basket, you're not going to get a winner every year. But at least you'll get known for something. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, years and years and years ago, we made the decision not to grow things. I mean, people ask us, oh, why don't you grow this or that? And I said, I'd love to. Buy me, a, buy me some land and I'll plant it over there, yeah. but not here. <laughs> you know, this is what we do here and this is all we do. Um, when we ran restaurants, um, we didn't try to make um, something for everybody um, out of, you know, our own brand. We feel very strongly that that... What we do, we do, and what somebody else does, they do equally as well. And we can have their wine on the wine list and make as much money out of it just by putting a, you know, buying it at a trade price and putting a markup on it. Um, rather than saying, no, I'm not going to have any wine in my restaurant but Heron's Flight Wine, wherever I happen to source it from. Anyway, come back to the Dolcetto. So we used to make nothing but a one red wine out of it. Um, and we'd sell it into the trade and we'd sell it into good restaurants. 
and we'd have sommeliers and wine waiters who would really be enthusiastic about it, and people would come in and they'd say, oh, you know, try. And they were going back, you know, to the 2000s, so, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And they'd, they'd, um, they'd say, oh, you got to try this Heron's Five Dolcetto. It's too unfamiliar, the name, Dolcetto. Nobody knew what it was, so people would say, oh, no, I'll have a Pinot, I'll have a Syrah, you know, a Merlot or something like that. So we didn't sell it. I mean, it was nobody ever bought it off the mm. wine list. You know, we mm. could sell it here because we could tell you the story. So in 2010, we made the decision that for economic viability, um, we, we, we need to do something different with the Dolcetta. So we started making a rosé, but a rosé with a difference to make it very dry, but very rich and full body. So it doesn't appear tart, but it's dry. We drink it at room temperature. You can drink it cold, but it it's also um, goes well with food. So since 2010, the fruit goes into the um, rosé. And in some years when I have more fruit than I require for that, then I make my red wine with it. And I only make um, generally enough red wine just to sell from here. Right. In a case or something like that. So right. I don't I don't try to sell it anywhere else. Somebody else wants to buy it, that's fine. We sell a little into a into a to a a, a a good retail place in Queenstown because they want it. I mm-hmm. say, well that's fine, you know. But but you know what it is. Okay. So what we do, you hold that. Okay. So now Dolcetto, we call it we give it rosato, we could give it the Italian name for rose. And You'll see that it's fruit-driven, but most rosés in New Zealand tend to be sweet, I think, and very fruity. And we, 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 as I said, we tried to do something different with it. I'm not saying that it's an Italian style. I have no idea what that would be. It's the style that we've done. So, strong fruit. Um, you taste it. It's very rich and viscous and, um, and dry, but not, not, Although, depending upon your palate, I mean, you might find it really dry, but most people don't. And we keep it low in alcohol. We try to make it somewhere between 11 and 12%, not over not over 12%, if we can help it. Mm. It's mm. nice wine. Mm. It is a nice it's wine. Lovely. Um, mm. Okay, so that's that. So pour that away. And then I'll give you the red wine that we made with the same grape. Okay. So that's been open for a few days, so don't worry about that, but um, that gives you an idea about what the red wine is. People will buy a rosé. I mean, even though on our label we tell you very big letters what the grape variety is, most people look at that and not have a clue. What's that referring to? Is that a made-up name? Is that calling our wine Dolcetto or something like that? Yeah. The, The biggest problem is that, of course, if people know a tiny little bit of Italian, they'll say, oh, is it sweet? Yeah, but no. Dolcetto refers to the to the fact that the the berries are small, they ripen early, and then they get sweet during the season. Mm. So the little sweet one has nothing to do with the wine. So, uh, but with red wine, people buy it on the grape variety. They won't, yep. they, rosé don't care. Yep. So they buy it on the color and what it tastes like, and that's what we found. So we we have a market for that now, and, and then, as I said, only if we have enough uh, fruit do we make do we make the red wine? Make the I happen wine. to really like the red wine, but I like the rosé as well. I yeah. mean, basically, I wanted to make a rosé that I would drink. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, what's your alcohol content of the red wine? Uh, 14. Yes, you could keep that up. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most, I mean, well, that's what it comes in at. So um, uh, when we make it, most of our wines are 13 and a half to 14. So, Red wines. Just because I'm, I don't know the answer, um, how do you keep the alcohol down in a wine? Good question. Good, very good question. There are, I mean, that, that actually is an interesting question because if you go and look at wine shops, you'll see what they call um, some brands like, I don't know, First Light, not First Light, First Pick, First Press, trying to keep, trying to pick them early so the alcohol um, isn't too high. The other uh, other way of doing it is that yeast, and we're talking about yeast that, that you inoculate with, not sort of wild yeast. Yeast, the whole different range of different yeast varieties um, transform different rates from sugar to alcohol. So you can, if you want, for example, a lower alcohol wine, I mean, if you took the same grapes and used different yeast, you will get different alcohol levels. Not a huge range, but you'll get some range, and so that's what, what you do. Now, I'll tell you very quickly how I make the wine, because that will help you explain the, the alcohol level. So what we want as an outcome is a wine that um, is rich, and full-bodied, but gives you the, the sensation of dryness. And if I um, had, um, so I had to think about this. So if I had, for example, two glasses of, of, of water, just ordinary water, and I went into the kitchen and I um, added two grams equivalent, two grams per liter of ordinary sugar, dissolved it, brought the two glasses of water back to you. And I, and I would ask you to tell me which one I've added the sugar to. And I would tell you, doesn't change the color, doesn't change the smell, doesn't change the fundamental taste, but you would pick it. Now, two grams per liter does not make something taste sweet. You need four to five grams per liter to make something taste sweet. But you will pick what I've added the sugar to because it does something. What does it do? Makes it more viscous. Makes it more viscous, exactly. Red wines commonly have like two grams per liter of sugar added to them just to fill out the middle palate to make it more viscous. Right. So I want that type of viscosity, but I want more than two grams. In fact, this has, most most of our rosés have between six and seven grams of uh, residual sugar. Now that would make something taste sweet. In fact, it's classified as off-dry. So what I've done is I say, that's the type of viscosity, the richness that I want, but I don't want the sweetness. So what am I going to do about that? Well, what I do about that is when I grow the grapes, I grow the grapes in such a way as to hold the, the, the ripening process down by leaving more crop on. Slows the ripening. And then what I do is I want to pick the fruit. I want to get it physiologically ripe. Got to get it ripe. But I want lower sugars. Um, and higher acids. So when I pick the fruit, and then we process it, and then we have it in a big tank, and then it's being fermented, and then we try to stop the fermentation at about six or seven grams per liter, which is very simple just by temperature. If I get the six or seven grams left, that balances the natural acidity, which I've left on because I've, I've had a, a bigger than normal crop on those vines, but you get that, that good ripe fruit flavor, but the acid 
balances the um, the sugar, the sweetness, so you're left with the viscosity and the sensation of the acid coming through and the sensation of dryness. Very simple. It's not like fun with chemistry. It's just natural process of understanding what you want to do at the end. Because you would you would you would pick that as dry. Uh, it's a little sweet on my palate, but it's probably because I've got that full body. Um, yes. feeling yes. and I'm going, yes. oh, I associate that with a sweetness. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of people will be sweet, but of yeah. course it's not really sweet. In fact, most people rarely say it's sweet. It's not sweet in a cloying way at all, but no. it's not like mm. a, um, acid, acid no, no, dry, no, no. which no. I Okay, prefer. some people like people came in yesterday and said, oh, no, it's very dry for them, yes. too dry for them. Yeah. So did you get it as dry? dry or? Oh, no, it's certainly dry for me. I didn't get a sweetness, but I did get it. It stayed with me. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, gives you, it gives you that palate length. Yes, and yes. That's, and that's what... That's Which what is not does. common in a no. rosé. No, if I, if I didn't do that, if I had the same... Let, let, like, if I didn't have that type of um, uh, residual sugar content and just had that type of acid, it would be very tart. Right. It would be thin and tart. Yes. And that's what, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. And then you come to the red wine, of course, with something completely different. So we lave the grapes on the vines uh, until we want to pick it. And then we process it and then stick it into oak and leave it on the skins for a long time. So it, it, it's like a... So sorry, then when your grapes are riper mm -hmm. and you have less acidity left in the mm -hmm. grape, what does that do in that process? Well, if you have, if the grapes are getting riper, then the acids are falling, the sugars are getting um, higher. I don't, I don't want to wait too long. Because it's not, I'm not picking it on sugars. I'm really picking it on. Dolcetto is funny. Um, Dolcetto, at least as we grow it on our site, it's sort of like if you remember the the, the kid's story about the saggy baggy elephant. Um, when the fruit is getting ripe, the berries start to shrivel. Not raisin. They're not raisining. They wrinkle. And at that point, I know that, and then a lot of other things happen, like the color starts leaching into the juice, which is going to give me a stronger color. And then I know that it's getting physiologically ripe, and then I need to plan to pick it sometime um, soon. And that's how, that's, that's how I know it. Now, generally speaking, it, yeah, it might be, you know, give me that type of alcohol level when I ferment it. But the, yeah, the acids fall. Uh, more tannin and um, and the yeah higher sugars. Very fine balance. Yeah, I mean the weight of a dolcetto is sort of like a, people ask us, oh, what is it? What is it like? And I said, well, if I have to say what it's like in terms of fruit weight. It's like a it's like a good Pinot Noir. I mean, it's not like a big Shiraz. I mean, it might it might have aromas and things like that, but in terms of the palate weight, mm. it's sort of what I call a midweight wine. Mm, it's not a yeah. heavyweight wine. No. But it's but it got has great length and things like that. Mm. It, I mean, it gets written up in Italian magazines and things like that. That this particular wine, because the Italians like other people doing their grapes, right? Other nice. other places in the world. Okay, now uh, rinse your glass out, pour it out, and rinse your glass out. Okay, now, now this is where this is where um, it becomes interesting. So now you have three versions. Three versions of Sangiovese, and and uh, what I like to do is uh, just explain that my winemaking most years look everything varies, but most years 
my wine, well, my, every year my winemaking is based on not flavors, but on texture, the texture of the wine. Mm -hmm. And the texture of the wine is all influenced by the skins. So, you know, like if I ask people, well, you know, what's the most important part of a grape? It's the skins because it gives you obviously the color and the tannin and a lot of the phenolics, a lot of the flavor, some sugars. Um, the pulp tends to give you the, the, the juice and the uh, bulk of the sugars. But the flavors, a lot of that it comes from the skins. So how you work with the skins during fermentation will influence the tannin structure or what I call the texture of the wine. And that's what's most important to me because you can have wine writers, like all oh, these wines get reviewed and you can read you know, descriptions of them. People don't buy wine. People don't, I should say, like wine based on the flavor profile. I think most people like wine because of how it feels in the mouth. Okay. It's a mouthfeel. It's simple. That's what, if it feels good, if it's really tart or really tannic or really aggressive, people don't like it. And so it, it doesn't mean that all wines have to be soft, but the all wine, depending upon the style, has to be in balance. So whatever that balance has to be. So what I mean by the textural differences is, 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 is in, in this particular case, um, explained. So we do, um, we do, uh, our basic wine, which we call Volare now. We've been doing this since 2010, second label. Burgundy bottle, screw cap. It was only with this vintage, however, that we, that we made up a name. We used to just put, uh, again, these are unusual grape varieties. Even so, I mean, we all think, you know, we travel and, you know, you travel to Italy and you may know these grape varieties, but really, New Zealanders are very conservative in what they try in mm. terms of wine. You think that the, the world of wine is all of these different interesting grape varieties and different wine styles. You know, unless they're under 15 bucks, people don't tend to want to try them. <laughs> so what we used to do um, <laughs> is, is in, in, right, these bottles, I used to have a label in which I thought, okay, well, sort of our expensive wines, and I've never liked the word reserve wine, but with our expensive wines, we have the little bird on it. We have the heron on it, distinctive and all of the things like that. So we needed to make a, 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 a second label, a cheaper wine. And in, in terms of packaging it, what I thought was, well, what we'd do is we would just have a, a big label on here and we would write Sangiovese on it. Sangiovese, big letters. Downplay heron's flight, Big letters all across there, Sangiovese, thinking it might pique people's interest. And the other thing we did is in the corner, I called it our, our unplugged Sangiovese, right? So we had our unplugged Sangiovese. And uh, people would come in and, and they would say, oh, what do I mean by unplugged? And do you know what I mean, what I would have meant by unplugged? Yeah. What? Well, I would have said you don't have all the sound systems going around I, you. I, I, indeed, that's a correct. It, it, to make it simpler and not so complex and all of that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Unplugged. Nobody got it, right? So 2010, I did unplug Sangiovese. 2011, I persisted. We did unplug, you know, unplug Sangiovese. Two years of, of, of people coming in and asking us what. So what I did in, in 2000 and, well, with this, um, 
2012, that's the next year, isn't it? I said, I'll keep the Sangiovese, but I'm going to drop the unplugged. So I just didn't have the unplugged. So what happened? Of course, people came in and said, do you have any of that unplugged wine? Yeah. <laughs> you see? <laughs> I said, you're too late. You're too late, you know? <laughs> so is that how long it takes, right? Yeah. And I said, well, yeah. we ain't going back. Um, and then we used to have a wine distributor, uh, national. We've always had wine distributors and, and because we can't do everything. And, um, and, and the wine distributor, um, it came into us just before we bottled this wine and said, um, you know, the biggest problem that we have with your wine, and I'm not going to mention the wine distributor, but the biggest problem that we had with your wine is your grape varieties, not your prices, your grape varieties. And I, you know, I said, isn't this an opportunity for you? We're doing wines that nobody else does. And we're doing, we're doing them in reasonable volume so you can get them in, you know. I mean, that's the whole point of not, if you're small, not doing too many things. Do one thing and do as big a volume as you can. So they said, oh, no, you know, we, uh, people don't know what it is. It puts people off. And I said, okay, it, it's possible. That's possible. So then what we did is we came up with a generic name, Volare, which is Italian for the French use the word la volée, which refers to, it very sound, sounds very similar to a game that you play. La volée. La volée? Volleyball. All right, and, and this is the Italian version of it. And what, what's volleyball referring to? The flight of the ball. It's, it's the flight, flying. Oh, Obviously, okay. heron's flight. Right. Right? Yeah. That's, anyway. No, but nobody knows what it means. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of course, now people say, "Is this a grape variety?" You see, so so you have no you have no way of winning. <laughs> you know, basically, no way of winning. Um, but anyway, so we will persist with this, and then on the back label we explain what it is. But here we just keep it quite simple, and we call it um, all right now. So what we do is, I'm just going to okay pour a little bit of this in here. Now, just let me explain before you try it. So when I talk about texture and, and the tannin structure, that relates to how long you keep it on the skins for during fermentation. Now, um, what I find interesting in the whole process of winemaking is that there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, they, a lot of people, you know, common sense, they're not wrong, but just maybe we're just slightly off beam a little. All right. If you go into wineries, Segadores, speak to winemakers. Often, they'll have pictures on the walls of big fermentation vessels, maybe open top fermenters like we what we use, and they'll be up there. They'll have hand, they'll be hand plunging, hand plunging. You know what I mean? You know, you know what I mean. Mm. So if I ask people, why do you do that? What, what's the answer? Why do you? Why are people three, four times a day pushing the skins down? Why are they doing that? To share the tannins with the juice. Extraction. Yes. Okay. So, so basically winemaking is you get your grapes um, with the skins, you destem them, you put them into your open top fermenters like this, all right? And then you've got all your skins in here and fermentation starts, whether it's wild yeast or you inoculate, it doesn't matter. And then the yeast creates alcohol 
and CO2 gas. So the CO2 gas pushes all the skins to the surface. And so what you're doing is you're pushing the skins back down because you think, right, that's how you're going to get the extraction of the color and the tannin and all of that type of stuff. Now, alcohol fermentation doesn't take long. Seven days, ten days, something like that for red wine. Then what happens to the skins? When the fermentation is finished, what happens to the skins? Before you take them off, what's, what actually is happening to the skins, right? You've been pushing them down, and, they, and the gas pushes them up again. When the alcohol fermentation is finished, and you now no longer have any CO2 gas, what happens to the skins? They fall. They sink. They sink to the bottom. And at that point, you press it out, and then eventually it goes into oak of some sort. That's this wine. That's basic, basic red wine making. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, for this wine, seven to ten days on skins. I give it any t any old oak. I just try to make it savory and smoky and very oaky and less fruity. Now, the more expensive my wines, the less oak I use. I don't. I. 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 As as you go up the scale, you go more into the fruit of the wine. But what I want you to do. Is, is so the, but they're going to smell very differently, the, the two wines, because I use very different types of oak. But I want you to taste it, swirl it around your mouth, and th just think about how it tastes in your mouth. Now, you don't need to say anything because then we compare it. Just how you, what it tastes like, and then you have to rinse your glass out. Okay? Right. Now, pour that away, rinse your glass out. Okay. So, now, I can do all of these three different types of Sangiovese with the same fruit. In other words, the same year. Now, these aren't, but that's, that's for other reasons. Now, what you do is you come to what I uh, unfortunately call the reserve wine, and I pick the grapes, get them into the open-top fermenters, just like I did with the Valare. But at this point, I have big cylinders, meter and a half, 250 to 300 in diameter, stainless steel sieve. It's all they are, big, a big tube, which is a sieve. And I put it right down into the middle of the open-top fermenters. Just leave them there. Ferment starts, fermentation starts, CO2 gas, alcohol, all of that. The cylinder sort of acts like uh, the middle of a volcano. So all the activity and the foam and all of that comes up through the cylinder and then spills out over the top of the skins. And I don't touch the skins. I don't pump them over. I don't plunge them. I, I don't touch them. I just keep them wet. Now, for most people, if I asked, um, because we've just explained why we push these things down to get extraction, and if I'd say, well, you see, this is where it's counterintuitive. Because I'm not doing anything to them. And in fact, when the alcohol fermentation finishes, right, no more CO2 gas, what I do is I take the cylinder out, and, and the skins, where, what happens to the skins now? All right? Alcohol fermentation is now finished, no more CO2 gas. What happens to the skins? In this case, what I've done is I've created like a, like a frozen lake, like the ice on top. <laughs> so it's quite hard. And and I have to, twice a day, I go down and I dig a little hole in them and I just keep them moist. I don't want them to dry out. 
But then you see, here's where the counterintuition comes in. You might say, yeah, but, but I thought, you know, where's the tannin and where's the color? Am I making a rosé? Because I haven't pushed them down at all in, into it. Not at all. You know, am I making a rosé? Well, what I'm looking for is when the ferment finishes, take the cylinder out, skins are there. Now what I'm doing is I am looking for a physical transformation in the tannin molecules. I want something doesn't always happen. But I'm looking for a structural change in the physics, or the chemistry of the tannins. And if this happens, it's what's called, what's called polymerized. Something happens to the tannin structure and therefore the texture. But remember, I'm not pushing them down. Every day I taste the wine after a couple of weeks and I'm looking for this change. And if this change happens, it happens within one day. And, and, and you immediately then know, oh, it's happened, and I now press it out. And in this, the reserve wine, it generally takes about a month to be on the skins. All right, now, you hold this. So, firstly, you say, am I going to be pouring you a rosé, right? I haven't, haven't done any of that. So, you can see, no, no. No, it's got very nice color. It's got very nice color. So, obviously... Well, maybe to get the color, I don't have to keep pushing the skins down. Okay. Maybe you don't. Now, it smells very different because now what I've achieved, what I'm trying to achieve is something where the reason you put it into oak barrels is to help soften, to help soften tannins over time. But anyway, see if you can tell what the difference is. Not the smell, but the, the taste, the texture. So I'm not looking for flavor differences. I mean, they might be there, but I'm looking for, does it taste differently? Uh, it just seems much more integrated. It is integrated. So the whole thing just smoothly flows over my tongue. Smooth, no smooth is the word. <laughs> smooth and soft. That's what it does. That's what, when the tannins polymerize, they go soft. So they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more angular and more angular, and then they've gone soft. The Valore is like a teenager. Slightly, it's got all the elbows and the knees and the things like this. This has all been rounded out. And so if I can achieve that during the fermentation, the use of oak is different. So I only put it into oak for five or six months. That's it. And, so, and did you say, so you have to pick that day when you think that changes? Well, it's done. So you press it out, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's in, in this case, it's 25 days. Do you press them out in the same fashion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I just mainly. I mean, I use I use the free run juice, and then then I press it harder, and I keep that separately, and then I might blend it back. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Same. Everything is every everything is pretty much the same. The way you described um, the two different techniques is like your parenting and what you might get at the result if you <laughs> possibly, <laughs> possibly, possibly. Yes, that's right. Anyway, but but anybody can see this difference. I mean, 99.9% uh, .9 of the people that I talk to about this can immediately see. And it's only that difference. Only that difference in, in terms of the processing. And, and it's easier to see that difference, as I said, if you really don't know that much about the grape variety. Hmm. Okay? Right, pour that away, mm. and then I'll give you for something now completely different. Said, which version do you like making? It, 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 they're all interesting. I mean, it, they're, they're, you know, um, and I don't make them all every year. As I said, I can do it every year. But how, I mean, if you're a small winery, 
the the reality of running a winery. I mean, the thing about running a winery is that you have to learn how to grow the grapes. And so we're an organic vineyard, and we we I mean that's difficult in this climate. You have to learn how to make wine, and you um, and then you have to learn how to sell it. And and again, when I say that that the problem that a lot of small wineries have, if they try to make too many things, or even if they don't, is they start building up stock. Now I won't get onto my little my bugbear about wineries and restaurants. Uh, you know, small wineries and restaurants. Um, I don't want to start talking about that, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, are you a winemaker? Are you a restaurateur? What are you? You know, type of thing. But, um, it's building up stock. And so we're, I mean, Mary and I are pretty clear that, and, you know, if we're going to be sustainable, economically sustainable, we have to do the best that we can. And, and it's not always, you know, going to turn out well. Do the best that we can. But then what I do is we, we look at stock. I mean, for example, this wine, the reserve wine, is 2013. I did it in 2010. In 2010, I did the second label, the unplugged wine, and the reserve wine. 2011, I didn't do any reserve wine. I made, put it all into, it was quite a wet summer, put it all into the unplugged wine. 2012, I still had stocks of the 2010, so I, I put it all into the unplugged. 2013 came along. I'd sold out of the reserve wine from 2010, and it was a really good year, so I put it all into the reserve wine. 2014, well, I had a lot of reserve wine, so I put it all into the unplugged, which now mm. we call Volare. So mm. the decision, because I can do all of these with the same grapes, the decision of what I do will be based on what stocks I have and what's selling and where I sell it and things like that, mm. and what the demand is for any of these. Okay, now hold that. So the last one is the wine made in, in the amphora. So not only is this made in a clay pot, but I keep it on the skins for between four and six months. So now you're talking about a wine in which I um, have the amphora, put all the grapes in there, ferment it in there. When the fermentation is finished, I now close it all up. I have a big airlock and a top, and I close it all up and keep it there. Till it goes through its malolactic fermentation, and um, then it goes through. Uh, then I, I just leave the skins on there for about t until they're starting to deteriorate, four months, something like that. And um, there you go. You try that. This we put it. Um, as I said, we put it into put all the grapes into the amphora, let it ferment. When the fermentation is finished, um, we close it all up, and we then keep it. Keep the skins in there for between four and six months, then take the skins out, and then keep the wine in there for a total of 12 months because I want to use it again. I only have one. So you just, you just take the skins out, there's no pressing? No, what I do is I take this tube, this big oh, set, yeah, yeah, and I put it into, like if this is the amphora, I put it down the middle of the amphora, mm -hmm. and then I pump off all the wine into another tank, and that leaves the skins at the bottom, and then I just take the skins out. No, I don't press it out. Right. Don't press them. Right. And then what I do is I always make a um, a small batch of wine in a tank, in a small stainless steel tank, which is exactly the same wine as the M4 wine, because when you take the skins out, it reduces the volume. 
And so I top it up with that wine. Right. Every year might be different. I mean, this, this is the first, the very end of the first. So, sorry, did you start using the Amphora With this wine, two, oh, that, which with is the 2015 vintage. 2015, okay. And so I've, done, I've just bottled the 2016, and the 17 is in, in the Amphora at the moment. Right, okay, okay. I mean, for people who are enthusiasts about this, I say, well, if you want me to do more, you can, uh, let me give you the address of where you can buy these things. Yeah. <laughs> you can buy me one. <laughs> yeah. Out of the amphora and then take the leaves out and then put it back in. Yeah, yeah. So the wine wine is in the amphora for 12 months. So it comes out and goes back in. Comes out and goes back in, yeah, within a few hours. Uh, Now, I will show it to you because the inside is just like the outside. There's no resin, it breathes. And the beauty of it is that it breathes, and uh, because that's what en- encourage that helps the wine over the year, and that's why I can bo- I bottle it. I don't put it into oak; bottle it straight from the M4. So then, does that make the wine more ready to drink because it's been exposed to oxygen? Or well, but but that's why you put it into barrels. You see, when you like winemaking one hundred and one, is that you 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 press it out when the skins have fallen. And the tannins will generally be quite aggressive. You stick it into barrels, bar- barrels breathe, and they, um, and that helps to soften the tannins over time. In this case, it's breathing the entire time. Um, is it going to make it that much easier? I guess that's the, that's the balance between, you know, I mean, you still have to do winemaking. You still are looking at it. You're still, you're not doing nothing to it. Um, I mean, it is it is it is referred to as a natural wine because you you don't have to use so many sulfites as you would in a normal wine because the skins act as a preservative. And that's one reason you leave the skins in for so long. Hmm. I mean, it is always a risk in doing all of this, but in am I making it up if I feel like I can taste? Uh, no, it's got a minerality to it, doesn't it? Which must be from the terracotta. Right, yeah. It's not unpleasant, though. No, no, it's, it's lovely. Really, it's really, it's... But you almost go, oh, it's going to, but it doesn't. No, I know. Yeah. No, it, it, it is remarkable, and it changes. It, I mean, one of the questions that we get asked is, how will it age? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I mean, I think it will age well, because most people age wine to integrate the oak, or aggressive tannins. Well, if you don't have any of that, but... Aging wine actually is, is, again, there are misconceptions on aging wine. Aging wine, wines age based on the quality of the fruit. Quality of the fruit is everything. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean high sugars or low sugars. It just means being physiologically right and handling it well. It doesn't matter whether big, massive tannins or massive acids like the French used to do it years and years ago. Wow. The gener- generation ago. So, so it will be interesting to follow. I mean, people who buy these, because it's expensive, you know, might buy one, and because we open them on weekends, um, because we want people to try them, uh, the people will come in and say, oh, I have one, can I just see how it's going? <laughs> try. <Yeah. laughs> oh, it's fair enough, you know, fair enough. I don't even charge them for that, you know. <laughs> My God, I hope they can try. So they don't open their one bottle. Now, when we, when, when we just to show you a little bit of how we think, why is it in that shape bottle, which is a Lindauer bottle, <laughs> Spumante bottle? bottle. Um, because it looks like the M4. Yes, good. Okay. Now, if you don't read the writing, and we wanted to make a label, which was unusual. So if you don't read the writing, what does the label look like? A, a female figure. 
Ah, good. Okay. And the sides have the amphora, right? Okay, it's actually the top of the bottle. Ah, oh, yes. Now I see that. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Yes, I mean, uh, women, yes, uh, that's a corset type, that type thing. It's elegant. That's right, elegant. Um, Now, can you see how we do the vintage date? Roman numerals. Yeah, so we had to get permission to do that. Wow. From? uh, Wine Institute, New Zealand Wine Growers. So we went, I checked it out, and uh, I, I got the legal advisor there, and I said, is there any restriction in us putting it in Roman numerals? And um, they said, um, let me have a look. <laughs> and they said, no, the regulations say only that the venture state has to be clear. <laughs> okay, now, you know, uh, so it doesn't matter what you put, in, what, how you do it. Uh, now, how, you, if you've been going around um, interviewing people, has anybody brought up the, something called the Wine Standard Management Plan? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I think I can quite easily say no, no one's mentioned there. <laughs> okay. Wine standard management plan. If, if, you are a, um, if you are a winery and you export, M- MPI requires um, certain regulations. So they have, together with New Zealand wine growers, set up this wine standard management plan program. If you export, you have to be audited annually, and it's quite expensive. It can remain six hundred thousand costs us about a thousand dollars to be audited. It takes about three hours. And it's basically to do with sustainability. Uh, not sustainability, trackability, traceability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what they'll do is the auditor will come up and they'll say, take give take give me one bottle of wine that you've bottled in the last year and we look at it. We look at all the vintage books. We look at uh, what sprays you've used um, and and they look around the winery and they'll say, are there any where your food, you know, all of these, you you have lists and training programs and all of this. It's quite, it's quite draconian. And then they look at the label and they'll require certain things. So the first time we did it, if you look at the back of the, now we're looking at the Volare label, and I'm asking you to look at the standard drinks. Now you understand what standard drinks refers to. You know, okay, so it's not the number of drinks in a bottle. It all relates to the alcohol level. Okay, now the first time we did it, we had to, when they were in, in, introducing it, um, we have a designer who, who formats these and then gets them printed. And I was, Mary and I were driving down to Welcome in the car and said it had to go to print. And uh, so we had all the label and he, and I said, and he asked me, so how, how many standard drinks did you have? And I said, 8.0. Eight. And so what he put on there was eight. Eight standard drinks. So when I was audited by the wine standard management plan, we happened to use this particular wine. And the auditor said, oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. It's got to be 8.0. Because, of course, it could be 8.3 or 8.4 or 8.5. So, uh, so, so they said to me, okay, uh, sorry, you, cannot, um, you can't sell this wine. This is the type of thing that the Wine Standard Management Plan is looking for, basically traceability and regulations. If you, if you make less than 10,000 liters and don't export, you don't have to have this and you can do whatever you want. But anyway, this past year, I used this wine as my example and the auditor sat there and looked at the vintage date. 
said, oh, Roman numerals. And I said, yeah, Roman numerals. Uh, oh, uh, and I said, I, I, you know, I went to the Wine Institute. Can you prove that? So I had to look at my emails and locate my emails, which said that the, from the guy from, from the Wine Institute to say, yeah, it's okay, you can do it. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But having said that, we sell a little bit this to this winery and um, uh, this a place called the Winery in Queenstown, this uh, wine shop type thing. And I sent some down to him and he rang me up and he said, okay, I've got this Amphora wine in front of me, but you don't have a vintage date. I said, oh, yes, I do. Have a look. <laughs> no, no, I've got it right in front of me, and I don't see any damn venture date. <laughs> I said, okay, right. So where were you educated? <laughs> I mean, look, if you're young enough, why would you know anything about Roman numerals? I don't, hmm. I don't see them around. You never? No. Only time you see them. Is but I'm sure you can Google it, so it's not that. It's only no a, doubt. <laughs> at the end of movies, movies always yes. tell you when it was made movies in do. Roman numerals, mm. generally. Mm. Something like that. So... So, yeah, that's – and we also make non-alcoholic grape juice. Oh, okay. And we make our own olive oil, and we do, we do bits and pieces. Right, okay. Like that. So, um, yeah, that's what we do. So that is what we do. Fantastic. And they're the wines. And, and <laughs> no, that's, that's fantastic. That's really, really good. Thank you. We, we finish on – the question is, if you could have a glass of wine with anyone, living or dead, or maybe who doesn't exist yet, uh, what would you have – and who would it be with? And who would it be with? That, isn't that an, an interesting question? Because it's often, you know, when you want a dinner party, who you who would you invite? I mean, I can tell you the the wine style rather than the yeah. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, that there's okay? no yeah. There's no right answer. No. I, well, I mean, I mean, the whole, probably the holy grail of you know, if you're a winemaker, is Pinot Noir. I mean, if I could sit down with one of the great. Pinots of the world, because the thing about Pinot Noir is that you don't need to actually drink it. It just changes in the glass, the aroma of it. If you get a really good one, you know, like it just, I mean, in fact, you don't want to drink it so much as just continually smells. And I mean, I think that, I mean, to, to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of who I would sit down and, and, and consume it with, oh, I mean, I have lots. I have. I have some. Actually, some very good friends. I mean, it doesn't have to be a famous person. No, you know. But if it was going to be a famous person, it would be somebody like Socrates. Okay. <laughs> because I think the conversation would be very interesting. <laughs> you know, or Homer. Um, I mean, I've, I, I, I've just finished rereading the. Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. And yeah. I mean, and, and I would, I'd read it in bed, you know, and I keep reading these bits out to Mary. And I said, the guy, I mean, it's the most amazing descriptions of, of, of things. That's, mm. that's what I would do. Right. Okay. You know, so Pino. Not Donald Trump. And Pino with Socrates. Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, right. And after all, I mean, they were very keen on wine. You see the ancient Greeks, symposium, you know, Socrates wrote the symposium. And it's all, ba- it's all, it's all based on uh, drinking games. And they had, the Greeks had drinking games. Mm. And um, they had, they had. in fact, m- m- one of my o- oldest friends is a Greekophile and he knows about all of these things. And sometimes if you see these, um, these images of, of these sort of oblong um, clay vessels, 
almost like gravy boats, if you know the old-fashioned gravy boats, something like that, uh, and they would have a handle on each side. These were, this is what you filled your wine in, and you drank it out of that, but you didn't drink the last swallow. What you did is the reason they were shaped that way is because you would flick it. You could flick it. And the wine would stay, and somebody else was supposed to catch it in those same same things. So there you go. So they were very famous for their their ability to consume lots of alcohol. You don't want to do that with a good pinot. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't. Know. I don't know that they. In fact, I mean, if if I had a million bucks, probably more. If I if I could do one thing, what I would what I would want to do is write a, bo- a book about Greek wine. I'd like to write a book by traveling through all the islands in the Peloponnese and all of that, going down to these little villages, because it's the most ancient civilization, one of them, in Mm. terms of winemaking. And they have unpronounceable names for grape varieties. Mm. I would just like to go to these places and write a book about them. Mm. That's If somebody wanted to give me a Christmas present, that's that's, 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 that's what it would be. Well, it's out there now. (laughs) (laughs) You might get a call or an email. Hey, maybe. Put it out there and we'll see what happens. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks, David. Thank you, boss. Appreciate that. Very good. Very, very good. Okay. No, I'm glad you you came and I hope it was all worthwhile. You've been listening to part two from our trip to Heron's Flight in Matakana, where we've been speaking with David Hoskins about his winemaking process. If you're wanting to find out more about Heron's Flight, you can look them up online, heronsflight.co.nz, and also be sure to check out some of the other great NZ Wine podcasts. Thanks for listening in. Hey, kona mai. Bye for now. <laughs>